The American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello, everybody, and good evening. Uh, This is Dr. Alan Fine. I'm the podcast editor for the Annals of the American Thoracic Society. And today it's my great pleasure to be able to interview Dr. Elliot Israel, who is professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, a true expert in the area of clinical trials and clinical management of asthma. And we're going to be discussing a very important and very practical area, and that's to how to manage uh, asthma that is, we'll call it exacerbating or getting worse. And Dr. Israel's paper was published in the May issue of the Annals and was entitled Increased Dose of Inhaled Corticosteroids versus Add-on Long-Acting Beta Agonists for Step-Up Therapy. And this paper was accompanied by an editorial by Dr. Nyenhaus uh, on stepping up therapy in the real world. And I'm glad we're talking about the real world. So welcome, Elliot. Thank you. One of the problems, I just, I was in pulmonary clinic this morning, and in the clinic, everyone seems to have asthma. I was thinking to myself that I'm not exactly sure what asthma is. I don't know if I can say that. So I'd like to ask Dr. Israel how he defines asthma practically in the real world. So I think that that's a a really good question. You know as well as I and and most of our listeners that that on the basis of definitions, asthma is defined as a episodic disease of bronchospasm associated with airway hyperreactivity and airway inflammation. The problem with that is, I think, as you're getting at, is that that doesn't leave us with a lot of uh, guidance for the physician who's faced with somebody who says, I'm short of breath when I exercise, or I'm coughing when I go out and do things, or my chest feels tight. And I think that the issue of question definition becomes one of level of intervention and urgency. So I think in the appropriate kind of clinical context, somebody who's a topic or has a family history of asthma who comes in and tells you that they're having shortness of breath or wheezing when they exert themselves or when they're exposed to Antilles cat or when they're exposed to strong odors, you do spirometry to kind of make sure you're not dealing with severe airway obstruction. And you can start low-level interventions such as um, inhaled corticosteroids and see if people do better. So I think the necessity to define asthma and to pin down your diagnosis depends a little bit on what level of intervention you're at and what degree of responsiveness people have and the morbidity of the interventions. So I think when we're talking about low-dose inhaled corticosteroids, in my mind, I'm okay if I cast a wide net and don't necessarily document that everybody has reversible airways disease or airway hyperreactivity. I think the issue of defining asthma becomes a more important one as one starts having to move up. So the patient comes back and says, I'm taking that inhaled corticosteroid and I'm not really any better. I'm still having those chest pains. I'm still having that shortness of breath. And that's when I think you start scratching your head a little bit and saying, okay, Am I dealing with asthma? Am I going to go to much higher dose inhaled corticosteroids or inhaled corticosteroids in a lung-acting bed agonist? 
and I want to make sure I'm dealing with asthma. Now, I have to say that what's happening in the real world a little bit, since we're talking about the real world, is that a lot of people are being started on combination therapy as first therapy. When one looks at the prescriptions now in Europe and in the United States, there's a remarkable amount of first therapy with a combination ics lava in people who've never been on anything before, not even albuterol. I think it's become easy, especially for primary care physicians, to start with that medication. That's an interesting problem in of itself, but I think certainly if you put somebody on that medication, they come back and they say, hey, I'm not really better, then you really need to ask yourself whether you're dealing with asthma and then start need to start thinking about, I need to document the airway obstruction, I need to document the reversibility, I need to document the airway hyperresponsiveness. You know, I don't know that we have a definitive answer to this. I'll just go on some of the patients I saw this morning. How important is it to document the airway reactivity? As you said, a lot of the patients are coming to certainly the pulmonologist already on a combination therapy or already at a minimum on inhaled corticosteroids, which may make it difficult to establish that documentation. Do we need to do methacholine or some similar challenge test? How important is expired nitric oxide, or do we just go on uh, clinical uh, judgment? That really depends on where you're going in terms of therapy and responsiveness. So I think when we get to the points where we're pushing really high-dose inhalocorticosteroids or higher-dose inhalocorticosteroids in a LABA and the patient isn't responding, I think it depends on the level of responsiveness of the patient and the level of intervention. So if you're at the point where you're using high-dose inhalocorticosteroids or high-dose inhalocorticosteroids plus a LABA and you're still having residual symptoms or poor control, I think you really need to ask yourself whether you're dealing with asthma and or whether you're dealing with asthma that's complicated by other aggravating factors. And that's when I think we need to step back and say, let's make sure the diagnosis is correct. Let's make sure we don't have other aggravating factors that may be related to or even independent of asthma, such as sinusitis or reflux or aspirin sensitivity or things like that that might be complicating this and making this difficult to manage. So it can be difficult to manage asthma or it can be that it's not asthma and one needs to make that distinction. Now, you asked about using exhaled nitric oxide. I think exhaled nitric oxide is great in terms of picking up on eosinophilic inflammation and probably 50 to 70% of patients who have asthma have eosinophilic inflammation. But there are two caveats. One is that we do recognize people who have airway reactivity, reversibility, who don't have eosinophilic inflammation. And the second is that when we start using inhaled corticosteroids, exhaled nitric oxide is extremely sensitive to inhaled corticosteroids. You have somebody come in and they're on inhaled corticosteroids and you do an exhaled nitric oxide and their exhaled nitric oxide can be low even though they have eosinophilic inflammation that's now being suppressed by the inhaled corticosteroid. So it's a great test for eosinophilic inflammation in people who aren't on inhaled corticosteroids. If you do it when somebody's on inhaled corticosteroids and it's high, it's helpful because it suggests that you have persistent eosinophilic inflammation. But if you do it on somebody who's on inhaled corticosteroids and it's low, you really don't know what to do with that because you might be just suppressing the NL. For this study that was published in the Annals, your paper, how did they define asthma? This was a study based on looking at databases, if I have it right. You're absolutely right. And so this was um, a very a large set of databases in the United Kingdom. So the asthma definition here was real life. It was primary care physicians, and these were people who had a diagnosis of asthma, who were receiving a bronchodilator and or an inhaled corticosteroid in the prior year, at least twice, 
for the patients who are above 40 years of age, they had to be non-smokers so that we wouldn't end up confusing people with COPD with asthma. So it's a very broad practice-based definition. Were they attempting to differentiate COPD and asthma? Only in the sense that if you were above 40 and you had a smoking history, you were excluded. You weren't included in the, in the match groups. So that's a good segue. What, what do you think about the issue of asthma and smokers, both from a causation standpoint and the, uh, the issue of clinical trials, which have excluded smoking asthmatics from the trials? There's increasing evidence to suggest that smoking on a genetic predisposition can certainly increase your risk for developing variable airway obstruction. And whether we want to call that asthma or call that ACOS, asthma COPD overlap syndrome, or whether we want to call that COPD, I think is something we can leave to another session. Another podcast. <laughs> exactly. But in regard to smoking, your, your question is very important in that we know that 20 to 25 percent of patients who have asthma smoke. And we also, there's a fair amount of data to suggest that in smokers, inhaled corticosteroids may be somewhat less effective. Now, let's get to your paper. Maybe you could give a a brief summary of what you did and what the conclusions were and what you think the take-home is on it. Sure. So, as background, the issue of what do you do to step up when you have a patient on inhaled corticosteroids, on low-dose inhaled corticosteroids, and they're still not doing well. And there have been a bunch of what we call explanatory studies. So, when I mean explanatory, they're very tightly controlled studies with very tight entry requirements and tight reins on compliance, et cetera. And there have been a bunch of those studies where they took patients and they randomized them to um, either get go up twice or four times on their inhaled corticosteroid versus adding a long-acting beta agonist. And in those randomized studies, which almost always included patients who had a bronchodilator response, so had a 12% or greater improvement in FPV1, and in many cases had been recently di- diagnosed with asthma, they showed that when you looked at exacerbations, which were defined in most of these cases as a 20% or greater decline in peak flow for several days or a need for oral corticosteroids or symptoms, that there were greater decrease in exacerbations in the patients who were put on the lava. But the problem with those studies is twofold. One is when you define people that way, the 12% bronchodilator, the recent history of asthma, whatever, it turns out less than 5% of patients with a, who are carried the diagnosis of asthma can make it into those studies. So we're dealing with a very select population. And the other piece of that is that the definition of an exacerbation is one that was dependent, that was defined based on airflow criteria. Declines in peak flow of 20 to 30% were considered severe exacerbations. Whereas, and when you use a bronchodilator, like a long-acting beta agonist, if you're using that as one of your parts of your definition, you're going to get a clear improvement in that regard. So I think what this study was really aimed at is saying, let's take all comers the way primary care physicians do, the way people they diagnose with asthma. Let's look at the patients who were on, who received the short-acting beta agonist inhaled corticosteroid in the past year, and who, at the initiation point, got either their inhaled corticosteroids increased or got a LABA added. And let's look at what those patients did over the next year. Let's match them up. You know, maybe physicians are giving one drug to another. Let's match them up based on their severity, based on their age, based on their comorbid conditions, based on their gender, obviously, and based on their prior use of inhaled corticosteroids and albuterol. So we have fairly well-matched groups. 
And so what we did is found all these asthmatics and then found asthmatics who had been put on helicorticerides and then found asthmatics and put on a LABA that matched these. And the, the match was not what's called a propensity score matching, where you said for the whole group, I'll say this many smokers, this many this, this many that. We actually looked for, okay, I've got an individual who's 45 years old who used a short-acting beta agonist, a half a canister a month, and who's a male and who's a non-smoker, I find in the database a person like that who, instead of being put on inhaled growth steroids, was put on a LABA. So they were matched actually very carefully. And if you look at the data, the, the, match, the matching went very well. And we looked at the next year. And what we looked at was, again, not an airflow thing, not a peak flow thing. We looked at, did these patients get hospitalized? They get courses of prednisone, which is what this definition is for a, what the consensus definition is, is for a severe asthma exacerbation. And when you looked at that and you compared the group of patients who had their inhaled corticosteroids moved up versus the people who had a LABA moved up, as opposed to what had been found with these randomized trials with these very select patients using frequently peak flow as one of the criteria, there was no difference between the patients who got an increase in their inhaled corticosteroids versus the addition of a LABA. In terms of exacerbations, in terms of percentage of time in control, which was defined as not having an exacerbation and not having a time period of using your um, beta agonist. And so from all the things that we could look at in these charts, there was not a difference when you match these people carefully up, suggesting in real life, when you use a much larger group of patients who aren't just bronchodilator responsive, and when you use real life outcomes, it may be that actually that, that therapy increasing the inhaled corticosteroids is as good as adding a long-acting beta agonist. Very different than what these very controlled, tightly differentiated and filtered trials showed. You know, you mentioned that you had become a grandparent and I had a uh, grandson. So it troubles me a little bit about the idea of putting someone on long-term inhaled corticosteroids, you know, who's relatively young. And I wondered getting into what your personal algorithm is and how you decide when to step up to inhaled, more inhaled steroids or when to add a LABA and what drives you one way or another or do you consider them equivalent? I see primarily adults. So I think the equations are different for kids in terms of use of inhaled corticosteroids, and that's why something like Montelukast is used a lot in kids, right. used a lot less in adults, right? Because I think there's much more concern about inhaled corticosteroids in kids. But I think in adults, inhaled corticosteroids at low to moderate levels are really quite safe. You know, we published a trial way back, it's now I think almost 13 or 14 years ago, where we looked at loss of uh, bone density in premenopausal women and based on their um, use of inhaled corticosteroids, what we showed was that it, as you increase the dose, you got a slight increase in loss of bone density. It was pretty small, and the real effects were out when you were at, out way high. So I think for low to moderate doses, I think they're really, in adults, that's not really a consideration. That being said, I think there are some people, and I don't think it's always important not to dismiss people, there are some people who probably are hyperabsorbers and slow metabolizers who do come in and say, oh, I'm, I feel like I'm getting puffy or I feel jazzed, even at moderate doses of inhaled corticosteroids, and I think those people shouldn't be dismissed, but they're very few and far between. So in that regard, in terms of thinking about the equation of inhaled corticosteroids and the um, long-acting beta agonist, the other thing that I think one needs to think about, which is really important, is in these trials, when these large trials were done that showed that 
LABAs were better than inhaled corticosteroids for exacerbations, when they looked at really serious exacerbations, that wasn't the case. So when they looked at emergency room visits and hospitalizations, there was not as much protection with the LABA as there was with inhaled corticosteroid. And so that's the thing that gives me a pause about, so we say, oh, we're a little bit concerned about using inhaled corticosteroids, but my worry for asthma also is, is the deaths and the true morbidity and the fact that if you're inadequately treating the inflammation, which is some of the concern that we, that we potentially have, is that we're doing that by giving people a LABA. And so, yes, they're not getting these exacerbations where you think you want to give them steroids, but they're having more of these hospitalizations potentially. And so that's the kind of trade-off. So I tend to actually make myself comfortable that I've adequately treated the inflammation and then start thinking about adding the lob or pulling back a little bit on the inhaled corticosteroid. But I, I like to get what I view as the disease process and the inflammation under control with inhaled corticosteroids if I can, because I'm always concerned that when I'm adding the LABA and on top, because I don't have good control of symptoms, that I'm not doing enough to really get at the root of the problem. Well, I'm just going to throw out one other question that comes up in my mind, and that is there a role for the anticholinergics, the long-acting muscarinic agents as a step-up therapy in deteriorating asthma? There have been several publications that suggest that adding a anti-muscarinic to an inhaled corticosteroid works as effectively as adding a LABA. So that's one piece. And there are now several development programs to you know, market potentially ICS LAMA, LAMA being long-acting muscarinic antagonists and anticholinergic, as opposed to just ICS LABA. There's also, there are one or two publications that have looked at adding a LAMA, an anticholinergic, on top of ICS-LABA in people who are poorly controlled and have suggested that that actually provides some additional benefit. So I think those are two areas where you can think about that. So I think certainly, you know, look, some people get treated with an ICS-LABA and they come in and they say, look, I'm really anxious, my heart is racing, I'm not sleeping well. I think that it's certainly reasonable to say, look, we'll give you the inhaled corticosteroid and try an ICS-LAMA. And as I said, I think we're going to have ICS-LAMA combinations eventually, but you can do them the two separately. And then, as I said, a, a additional agent. But if you're at the point where you have an ICS-LAMA and you're adding a LAMA, again, this is the point that we talked about earlier, you really need to be comfortable that you're dealing with asthma and that you've dealt with all the comorbidities. Because it's not that large a population that should really be not controlled on high-dose inhaled corticosteroids plus a LABA. We're really talking about 1 out of 20, 7 or 8% maybe. And even a lot of those are probably people who I believe the morbidity has not been really, comorbid conditions have not been really addressed. Well, I think we have certainly a lot to think about. And on top of all this, we have a whole host of biologics coming down the pike. But as uh, Dr. Israel said, that's for another podcast. So I want to thank Dr. Elliot Israel for sharing his insight regarding asthma step-up therapy. And we hope we can get him back again. And for the uh, American Thoracic Society and the Annals of the American Thoracic Society, this is Dr. Alan Fine.